From John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, the loving servant. The loving servant. Now, for the past few weeks, we have looked at uh, chapter 12, which is a bridge chapter in John's Gospel. Now, as we leave this particular section, we are also leaving behind the public ministry of Jesus Christ. From this point on, John does not record any further ministry by Jesus to the crowds, to the multitudes. So this morning as we move to chapter 13, we are entering the next phase, the next major section in John's Gospel. And Jesus will now turn his attention for some closer teaching towards his disciples, seeking to prepare them for his death, which will take place in less than 24 hours. There will be a lot happening. So, there are only a few hours left which are preciously significant. And so here in the next few chapters, the Apostle John, as he writes his Gospel, he slows down. Every word, every action is significant. It is poignant. It is, it is something that is very meaningful. It is intense because it is preparation for the death of Jesus. So we're going to look at this perspective from the, at, at this passage from the perspective of, of love. First of all, from verses 1 to 5, an example of love. An example of love. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. If you didn't get it, I'll say it again. He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment and wrapped the towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Because of the significance of what was going to happen in just very few short hours, you can only imagine what was going through God incarnate, Jesus Christ, what was going through his head. The suffering that was to come, the betrayal, the death. In spite of all of this, he's able to say how much he loves his disciples. Having loved his own, having loved his own. Having been with them for a while now, he was going to show them what love was all about. It was a, it was a preview of the significance of the cross. He was able 
to love his disciples to the end, even when he knew that Judas was going to betray them. Even when he knew that Peter was going to deny him. Even when he knew that they were going to be scattered. And this makes Jesus' unwavering, unlimited love for his disciples even more amazing, doesn't it? And Jesus knew that the finish line in respect of his, of his mission on earth and his return to the Sovereign Father was just around the corner. And the fact that he knew why he came, the purpose, that all things had been prepared, had been done, that all he could do was done, helped me to hang in there and to complete the task that he was about to perform. Because Jesus was in obedience to the Father. And the whole passage, the whole issue here is is one of servanthood that we're talking about, the loving servant. And what is the context of servanthood if not obedience, isn't it? That is the very the very thing that holds it all together. If 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 a servant is not obedient, why is he even a servant? And it is good news for us that even while facing the prospect of death, he didn't fail to love us. And then certainly he will not have any problem loving us while he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If he didn't love us, if he didn't fail to love us then, how much more will he continue to love us now? with all the power that he has. He is now right hand of the Father, our mediator, interceding for us, for you and me. This is why our prayer should be full of unceasing praise, no matter what our present circumstances might be. Because we know he has loved us He does love us and will continue to love us. So back to what was happening there. That even before proceedings began that evening, Judas Judas had already begun to entertain thoughts of betrayal of his master. You see, Satan can plant thoughts in people's hearts. Yes, even followers of Jesus. This is what happened to Judas. This is why we must, as his followers, be diligent and not give, as the Bible says, the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him a point that he can climb all over you. The thing is that if you don't feed on the Word of God, you don't pray and you don't meet regularly with God's people, you are much more vulnerable to succumb to Satan's lies and then continue on pretending that everything is fine in your life when it isn't.
Walking all day long on dry, dusty ground means that your feet will be dirty most of the time. That was part of the course in that part of the world. So the, before the meal, it was customary for, for, for whoever to part, to, to wash, and especially for something as significant as a celebration of the Passover. And the foot washing was a lowly task, usually performed by household servants or slaves. But it, all, it wasn't always done by them. Sometimes it was done as an act of love, by a wife for her husband, done by a child for the parents or sometimes done by a pupil for his teacher. It was seen as an act of extreme devotion. And this act also takes us back to what Mary did at the beginning of chapter 12 to Jesus when she brought out the ointment, the expensive ointment, and prepared Jesus for his burial. It was, of course, this whole issue of foot washing, it was an act with social implications. So those with a higher status would never wash the feet because it is a lowly act. They will never wash the feet of those who are below them Socially. So when Jesus laid aside his outer garments and wrapped around himself a towel to wash his disciples' feet, it's it's a fulfilment of of what the Apostle Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that he he made himself nothing by, by, by taking on the very nature of a servant. It wasn't just a a doctrinal statement that makes it sound good and proper, but it was actually something that he did. This is who he was. And the overriding, I repeat it again, that the overriding expectation of any slave or servant is obedience. One can certainly be obedient and perform a task out of duty without any display of love whatsoever. Can you not? We see it all the time. We see a lot of people doing stuff because they have to. They don't do it out of love. They might do it for money. All right, I'll do it. So even for your kids, you have to give them an allowance, otherwise they're not going to do it. There is a price, there is something. Okay, why why am I doing this, Dad? Uh, Because you love me? Come on, get over it. What's love got to do with it? The wonder of Jesus is that he loved his father, he was obedient to him, he came to perform the ultimate duty 
to bring us salvation, but it was not from a reluctant compulsion. Jesus, are you going to go and give your life, sacrifice, suffer for those people on earth? Do I have to? Really? I don't want to. You think that was the conversation? Just no. I'll go. Of course I will. And, and, and even in the agony that will come in Gethsemane, just a few hours away, even then, he, he submitted to the Father because of love. Because of what was at stake. Yes, there is duty, but, but duty with love. Because if you separate the duty from the love, all you get is this, oh, all right, I'll do it. There's a reluctance. There is, there is a... There is an unhappy compromise somewhere. I'll do it, but I won't like it, all right? Okay. A sigh. Have you heard that before? Yeah, you have. You might be thinking... Okay, I get it. I get it. I, I get it. Where you're going with this, Paul? I, um, just tell me what I, I need to to do, and and I'll be a servant. Okay. Just tell me. But you see, it is difficult to say exactly what a servant does. But you know one when you see one why it is hard to to get a good definition of what servanthood actually is. But you know what it is when you've experienced it. And, and, And this is where we need to make an important point. Being a servant doesn't start with what you do. Being a servant starts with the attitude of the heart. And whatever you do follows from the attitude of the heart. So let me ask you, when you do something, is your heart in it? Because what matters to God is that your heart be in it. Now, an explanation of love, verses 6 to 11. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then Lord, said Peter, not just my feet, but my hands, my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath only wash, don't, you know, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. 
And that's why he said not everyone was clean. One of uh, Jesus' many amazing traits is, of course, his patience, isn't it? There's another interesting interchange here between Jesus and Peter, and there will be more, even post-resurrection, of course. Um, Peter was, at first, Peter was objecting to to the action. In effect, telling Jesus that no matter how much time elapsed, he would never allow him to humiliate himself by washing his feet as it was beneath him. It was undignified. You can't do this. And Jesus responds, telling Peter that even though he didn't understand now the significance of what he was doing, the the, the foot washing, he would understand later. He was inferring that at some point in in the future, Peter would not only accept what Jesus was presently doing, but he will reflect on it, he will be grateful for it, he will see it as a, as a great example, he would really, really appreciate it and, and think about, gee, I was a fool, wasn't I? As with many other parts of John, of course, there is a deeper meaning here that we need to explore. In verse 8, Jesus was not talking first and foremost about washing Peter's feet with water, but rather he was talking about washing away Peter's sin with his blood on the cross. Washing feet was, if you think washing feet, somebody's feet is is an act of humiliation, it is nothing compared to the humiliation that Jesus would suffer on the cross, is it not? Furthermore, when Jesus told Peter that he would have no part with him if he didn't wash him, that is also significant. The word that is used there uh, for for part was, was regularly used in reference to an inheritance, when an inheritance had to be broken up in parts in order to be given up for the descendants. So you, people would turn up and say, can I have a part of that please? And that, that word is used in Luke chapter 15, verse 12. But it can also, be, a part could also mean that the blessings that will come in, in the future life, in the life to come. So Pete, the impetuous Pete, once again goes from one extreme to saying no to the other extreme. Okay, the whole lot. The whole kit and caboodle, please. Thinking that if, if by allowing Jesus to wash his feet will bring a good result in terms of the future kingdom, then perhaps a more extensive cleansing might produce a greater blessing. So not just the feet, but, but everything. But Jesus wanted Peter to know that once a person had been washed in the blood of the cross, they would not need to be washed again in order to be part with him. In other words, you don't need to be saved all over again. And even though Peter's 
coming denial was known by Jesus. It will be spoken by Jesus at the end of this chapter, actually. He viewed Peter as already clean. But they were not all clean because the betrayal by Judas was also foretold by Jesus. This is why Jesus is able to love us perfectly. He knows everything about us. Everything. And he still loves us. Isn't that amazing? He is not limited as we are in either his knowledge or discernment. So, so, so Christ's work in, in, on your behalf in washing you is, is once for all and doesn't need to be repeated again and again and again. The old hymn us in the, in the first stanza, it, it says, Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? So if you want to be set free from the filth of your sin, come to Jesus by faith in order to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And if you need to be washed, you need to come. And once you're washed, you don't need to be washed again. That is his promise. In verses 12 to 17, we have an exhortation to love. An exhortation to love. When he had finished washing their feet, he put up He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that, you have, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If ever there was a lesson that is the hardest to learn, I think it, it's this one, isn't it? That is why he asked them, do you understand what I have done to you? Hang on. Didn't just... Didn't Jesus just tell Peter in verse 7 that he would not understand what he was about to do? Yet here in verse 12, he asked all the disciples, including Peter, do you know what I have done? I thought you told us we won't understand and now you're asking us if we understand. Now, on the surface, it might seem a little confusing, but in verse 12, Jesus is moving on. He's talking about something else from what he was talking about in verse 7. The foot washing symbolised his atonement when his blood on the cross would wash away the guilt of our sin. But here the focus of the foot washing changes from something that is done to them to something that 
we must now do. The address, they address him as teacher, which was uh, an equivalent term to, to rabbi, a, t- a term of respect. They also addressed him as Lord. The term Lord, kurios, it covered everything from polite respect, like our, our modern, you know, when we call somebody sir, to an acknowledgement of God himself. Remember that the, the disciples had already confessed that Jesus was the Messiah. So when the disciples called Jesus Lord, you would hope so. You, you, you'd think that they mean much more than just polite respect, even though their full understanding of who Jesus was would not really come to fruition until way after the resurrection. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul described himself in, those, in that opening chapter, his opening verses, as a slave to Jesus, his Lord. There cannot be a slave without a Lord and there cannot be a Lord with at least one slave, can there? Just the mere fact that there is a slave means that there has to be a master or a lord. Just the fact that you are lord, well, what are you lord of? Well, these are my servants, these are my slaves. In light of Jesus' instruction to wash one another's feet, does this mean that foot washing is in now as, 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 as an important ritual just like communion? The Lord's Supper? Well, there have been times in different groups and part of the church and, and I think it's part of the ritual. The Pope does it at least once a year, doesn't he, where he, he washes feet. But nowhere else in the New Testament was, is, is foot washing treated as some ecclesiastical rite. But in this command, Jesus was calling his disciples to Imitate, to imitate his life of sacrificial service. And he's calling us, his followers, his disciples, his children, to serve others without limit, without any regard to our own personal interests. Good thing is that there are a lot of great examples of what the church has done in the past 2,000 years following the instructions of Jesus. Christians have gone out, started orphanages, schools, hospitals, given themselves to the task to go where no one wants to go, to care and wash and treat those suffering diseases that nobody wants to know about and yet Christians went. Why? Because they were following the example of Jesus. 
Now, while Christians are at the forefront of this, at the forefront of service, we are not the only ones called or who are actually doing it. Uh, the world has a, a different approach to serving. Uh, the words used are volunteering, um, or they call it a philanthropic approach of the world, that, that uh, they give when people ask for money, they, they volunteer in organisations and then they give. Australia is actually known as one of them. It's a very generous country when we, we punch way above our weight when it comes to, to giving for causes, and that's great. But you don't have to be a, a believer. You don't have to be a Christian to, to give. And one of the most generous givers in Australia is, uh, of course you know him, Dick Smith. He is an atheist. He's given so much, given so much in so many different causes and, and continues to give and he's already told his kids that they're not going to receive anything because he's going to give all his wealth away by the time he's dead. And they asked him, what is your motivation for giving? And he says that he's, he gives because how good it makes him feel. That's his motivation. Is that why we give as Christians? It is human nature to serve others you see, after we have first served ourselves and those in our immediate circle, our kids, our grandkids. We only give the time, the energy and resources that are left over after taking care of our own needs and wants. While time and money are usually involved. I believe that in the times in which we live, perhaps the most precious commodity that we should be also giving is our pride. Let me explain. Just listen to the common words used today. I'm offended. I'm insulted. I feel I have been taken advantage of or <clears throat> used. I feel humiliated. Have you heard those? All the time. The problem though is that as Christians, <clears throat> we should be the least offended people on the planet. If the world acts like the world, should we really be surprised? And the typical insult from the non-religious crowd is to refer to believers as ignorant and stupid and brainwashed or to otherwise suggest that those who have faith are less intelligent, I've heard that one, than those who do not. And then when a, a Christian stands up and intelligently 
gives an answer for his faith as a defense for the gospel, the terms change. Oh, you know what you're talking about. Oh, then you must be a bigot. You must be an extremist. You're a zealot. So, you can't win. Remember that today being hurt is easier than being right. To prove you're offended, you just have to rustle up moral indignation and tell the world about it. You go on Facebook and you tell, I've just been insulted, you know, and then you rustle up some, you know, you're playing the victim card, you see? Tell the world about it. To prove you're right, you actually have to make arguments, use logic, come up with something to, to prepare yourself. Why debate theology or politics or economics if you can win your audience by making the other guys look like meanies? Why debate? You just call them bigots. But as followers of Jesus who want to follow the ways of our Lord, the suffering servant, How do we do that when we take pains to show our scars? You know, when we try to show off our suffering, in front of every, when we're parading our, our victimhood in front of everybody. How does that work? Do we want to follow Jesus' model or do we want to follow the model of the world? Having said that, if a law is broken and a legitimate right is taken away, as we are seeing evidence of, of that, we need to protest with passion. We need to use the rights of appeal, just like the Apostle Paul did. What did he do? He appealed to Caesar and that provided a whole avenue where right to Rome, he was preaching the gospel. Of course we need to use that. What does a servant look like? Look to Jesus. Jesus came into this world. He devoted himself to a life of service without limit and without regard to his own personal interests. Okay, so maybe that is beneath you. Listen again to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So if a slave is not greater than his master and the master is prepared to become a slave, where does that put the slave? (laughs) It puts him actually on the same level as the master, which is unheard of, is it? When, When Jesus exhorted his disciples to wash one another's feet, 
It was something that he had already done. It was something that he was already prepared to do. So if it was something beneath them, that the master would bring himself down, then it should be something that is considered, okay, this is part of what we're going to do now, guys. Because if our Lord has come down to our level to do this, this is not beneath us. This is actually something, it is an expectation of the kingdom. What's more, when Jesus exhorted his disciples to wash one another's feet, he, was, he wasn't pushing them down. He was actually lifting servanthood up, wasn't he? To what level? Or how high is heaven? He is, 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 is turning the whole world situation upside down, actually. You want to be great? Be last. You want to be great? Be the smallest. Be, be a servant. He had, in effect, by, by the way he had chosen to live his life, dignified dignified a life devoted to sacrifice and service and service and 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 tells us that this is the way to greatness this is the, what we are to do Jesus calls us he exhorts us to look at what he did and to go and do likewise how often I've often hear the prayers of asking God to bless, to bless them. You pray for God's blessings. Well, here is, a, if you're searching for God's blessings, here is one, easy to pick. This is the lowest hanging fruit from a tree of blessing. This one. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. How's that, eh? How's that for a blessing? Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You want to be blessed? Go and do this. Do what? Serve. Your servant. No, Lord, I mean another blessing. <laughs> Not that one. So we are called, my brothers and sisters, to follow. Jesus' example, and to consider ourselves blessed as we do so. And if in obedience, not reluctant obedience, but loving obedience, we follow his example of humble, sacrificial service, we will one day exchange our cross for a crown. Why do we do this? Because of how much he loved us. He loved us to the end and he will continue to love us. Never doubt it. Amen.